It's like, why am I driving people away even though all I'm trying to do is help them? That's a big realization. I, I, I'm like pouring my heart out for you. I'm like, I'm like, I'm lying myself on the coal so you can walk over me and all you're saying is I'm a bad person. <laughs> What's going on here? Just giving advice when people don't want it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. I, I, I. Take a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. Inside us. I've been very interested in this problem for a long, long time. Something settles. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Mitch Wallace, and I'm excited to be sharing another story with you today. My chat today is with Darren, who represents your average bloke with a good job and a young family, but gives an insight to the underlying concerns for a lot of men like him. We talk about the intense stress some men feel at work and the pressure that's imposed on them from both internal and external sources. Darren was working in the mining industry, which is very well known to be a super challenging environment for a lot of reasons, but largely because people are away from their loved ones for long periods of time. Like many others, he knew he was pushing it a little too hard, but it wasn't until he completely snapped that he knew something had to change. Now, he's on a mission to help connect other men with their purpose so that they can live more fulfilling lives aligned to their values. Part of that is in his mission with Weapon, WPN, his um, business that we talk a little bit about on the podcast. There are no real trigger warnings for this episode, but as always, go slow, go strong, one day at a time. We're all on the journey. I have this reoccurring dream where I go back to skiing when I was a child um, and my, I think my fondest memory is of skiing, um, being on a mountain somewhere in the South Island of New Zealand. And, uh, I, I just remember being this little ball of puffy ski stuff cause I was tiny and, you know, skiing and, you know, the, the clothes are always oversized. And I remember, um, yeah, skiing with mum and dad and, and just feeling the idea of limitlessness and, and just, um, yeah, and just whenever I have this moment of trying to find peace or my happy place, that always is where I go to. Um, yeah, that's my fondest memory, I think. It's beautiful. Did you, so you grew up in NZ? Yeah, Kiwi, born and raised in New Zealand and moved here when I was uh, 25, I think, 25. To Brisbane? To Brisbane, yeah. Yeah, specifically Brisbane, yeah. And um, and so in the early days, was uh, was skiing something that the family would bond around? Yeah, a lot. Skiing was a lot of the bonding. We would, um, in wintertime, obviously being in New Zealand, it's quite cold a lot. So, yeah, skiing would be a favourite pastime of my family. And then in summer, it would be usually, yeah, the beach or riding bikes. So I think bike riding would have been one of the early years, but... Skiing sort of became a, a family thing that we always did. Uh, and then as we, soon as we needed to pay for it ourselves, I don't think I've really been skiing since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of take it for granted, don't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very expensive to go skiing. So I, I spent my childhood skiing and I think the last time I went skiing, oh, it's going to be a decade. Yeah, easy. Mm, or more. And so you're uh, an engineer by trade. Um, is that something that you know that you've always wanted to do? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it, maybe not always. I think it was very clear from when I was fifteen. Uh, from when I was fifteen, I I had someone, you know, I was expressing interest in a variety of things, and someone said, "Have you considered being an engineer?" Prior to that, I, I actually wanted to be a firefighter. Um, and I just really love the idea of the engines and whatnot. And, you know, like I just really wanted to be a firefighter Then I really wanted to be in fireworks and I really wanted to be in demolition. And then, uh, yeah, someone said like, Hey, have you considered engineers? And I didn't understand the concept of engineers. And then once I looked into it, I went, Hey, this is cool. And then ever since I was 15, that's become my life goal. 
Wow. What what do you think it is about the the fire element? Because that seems to be a bit of a theme there um, that makes you so exhilarated. I literally love fireworks. I just, you know, any fireworks I can get my hand on, I just love it. I I don't know what it is about it, but just I would be the most happiest setting fireworks off. And it's not destroying anything. It's creating something and it's in like it's entertaining people and it's you know like i really love creating a sequence of fireworks and every year we buy these massive boxes of fireworks and and i set about planning how we're going to execute and which ones are going to go off at what time and you know i put a lot of thought into it i, I just love the yeah i just love it because it's just it's such a such a magical thing and it's such a one like everyone sits back and watches fireworks and, and really enjoys it so i yeah i thoroughly enjoy it so there's um, there's almost like two sides to you that there's this creative, wondrous, playful, almost childlike joy mixed with the planning and the logistics and the engineering and stuff that goes behind that. Do do you find that there's two sides to you like that? I never, I don't probably embrace the, the, the playful side enough. I I think fireworks is definitely somewhere where I become a kid and mm. and you know like one of my favorite things is we went into America and there's just no limit on what fireworks you can get there and I honestly felt like five years old I was just giddy and a kid and I was so excited and it was the most exciting thing I can remember is just going into this massive fireworks place um, but yeah I do think that the other side of things is the analytical side of it comes out and then I sit there and I like analyze how these things are going to be put together and how they're going to look the best and, and yeah but then I, I get so much enjoyment out of it because what happens at Christmas time is all the kids come around all the families come around they all watch this display and you know like the kids stay up at night for the fireworks that I set off so yeah I just I really love that um, that idea of family coming together around it and, and how I can, you know, share that moment and, and, you know, see the wonder in the little kids' eyes is they, they, they absolutely love it. And, um, yeah, it just gives a lot of purpose to me when I do that at Christmas time. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a community element to it. Um, yeah. How, did, you, did you have a, a strong family unit growing up where, where people were, where your family would come together uh, over either special occasions or just in general? Yeah, quite often. Yeah, we live very close to a few family members, and um, we uh, every Christmas would go away, or Christmas people would come to us, and we'd have a big family Christmas. I remember a lot of big family Christmases when I was younger, and um, I think they're still an institution. We still do it to this day. This year could be a bit different. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's probably the biggest worry for us this year is actually can we fly? Um, but yeah, every year it's a big Christmas. Um, it's a big part of our um, our family and, and, and just brings everyone together. And I think it's like my re- recharge time. Like it's every year I go back and I just kind of like turn off and then spend two weeks with my family and recharge and, you know, think about for the year. And, and, and yeah, that's, that's what I enjoy about it is um, it's kind of like a reset for the next year. Definitely. Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that. Um, do you remember the first thing that you made or created that you went, holy shit, I love this. I want to do more of this building stuff. I wonder whether I remember this or the fact that there is a photo that it cemented in my mind, but there was this aeroplane that I made out of cardboard. <laughs> And surprisingly enough, I strapped fireworks to it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I made it out of, and it flew, and I strapped fireworks to it, and it flew really far. And I remember that being amazed by, you know, building something and constructing something and being able to make it fly and then learning about it. So I I think there's an element of the fact there's a photo of it that kind of like cements it in my mind. There's probably many other things, but to me that really, really early on that was something that just, thrilled me and the other memories I have is um, dad used to always bring back you know like say he bought a table or a piece of furniture or a vacuum cleaner he'd just be like I bought that it's still in the box can you get it out he wouldn't give me any help to set it up and I would do it all from scratch and the idea was it was it was something I thoroughly enjoyed was putting things together so I remember always loving the idea that they'd bought something. It's like, oh, I get to put this new piece of furniture together or this TV or this thing. And I just absolutely loved it. And I think Dad got a lot from it as well. I think I think he bought a lot of the stuff just so that I would like go and put it together. 
Um, and I remember we used to pull cars apart and vacuum cleaners and figure out how they worked. And, um, you know, I used to do mad scientist experiments when I was younger with um, well, just any sort of mechanical thing I could build, anything I could get my hands on. Mm. Um, that's how I started, I think, a long time ago, but to come in an engineer. Yeah, wow. So it sounds like your dad almost knew that that's who you were and that's what lit you up. And, and he, in a very sweet way, almost gave you the conditions to do that on a micro scale. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he basically bought those things so that I could yeah, really enjoy it. And I think he saw a lot of, um, a lot of enjoyment, a lot of passion from it. And um, he yeah, kind of fostered that idea in me about um, building and construction and whatnot. Yeah. And do you think that the um, this sense of like creating and 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 building and following instructions, do you think that comes from a want to feel in control of things? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Um, I think it comes from an an idea of needing to know how something works. Yeah. Um. I have this deep-seated thing that I can't grasp something at all unless I know the fundamentals of why. So why does something work? What's the physics behind it? But it even goes further to that into people relationships and um, Mm -hmm. everything. It's like why does someone tick? Why does someone think that way? Why does an interaction go that way? And, And if I can't get to the root cause of it, I struggle to understand it. So even in personal relationships, if I can't understand why this thing's working, I yeah, struggle to understand a concept. Um, and, and, and that's who I've always been. I, I need to break it down into a logical manner. And, and it does create issues when I'm you know, talking about things of love and nature and, and people because I'm so clinical with it that it becomes difficult to understand concepts that I can't explain why. Yeah. 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 No. And I can, I can again relate to the wanting to understand everything. Um, Maybe not to the point of analytics uh, that an engineer would go to, but I can imagine that your gift can also turn into your curse sometimes when the matter of the head isn't being called upon where, you know, as, as you referred to, for instance, relationships, how do you balance that and how do you get into your emotions when your brain wants to lock them away? I've always been very empathetic. I think, um, I've, I've always felt people's feelings on, I've always, yeah, I've always felt, I can feel what other people are going through. Um, I might not be able to explain it and that may mean that I don't articulate myself well, but I feel it. So if someone else is struggling with something, I feel what they feel. I might not Mm. understand it and I might not. And that may also then be problematic because I say, I know what you're going through, which I generally don't, but I I feel their pain. And so um, I've always found that when someone's going through something, yeah, I feel their pain, but then I try and understand it logically and it, it becomes more of a problem than it's worth. And not the more that's worth, but it becomes a problem because, yeah, I try and break it down into a logical manner that I can work through in my mind while I'm dealing with something and I'm trying to understand it. So how do I deal with that? A lot of work, a lot of work on myself to understand people, um, relationships, I've kind of tried to be a student of um, studying people. I spent a lot of time when I first came to Australia just going in, out on the street and just talking to random people um, to, well, A, work on myself, work on mm-hmm. my ability to just have a conversation with people, um, but also just to understand the psychology of humans. Yeah. Um, and that was a really weird and confronting thing. I was in a pretty dark space at that time. I didn't have a good relationship and I was alone. And so I just literally went into the city and just talked to people and just tried to create conversations that weren't creeping people out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, some random person up to you and you have to engage with them and and, and quickly learn how to talk to them on what they're talking about. And so, Yeah. yeah. You almost put yourself in a 
quasi exposure therapy session where you you were like, hey, this makes me uncomfortable. So I got to go do this in order to break through this barrier, whatever it is. Yeah, that was 100%. I was alone and didn't have any friends. So I went out to strangers and tried to learn from them. And, and, And in some ways, it was kind of like, you know, my own issue of trying to overanalyze things, but trying to go out and talk to someone and then just try and listen to them and get them and understand them and try and talk to them about something that interests them rather than um, try and talk about something that's interesting to me. Um, right. And that's been a lifelong thing is that it's in, you know, I get so passionate about what I'm interested in because, you know, that's who I am as an engineer. I tend to revert to talking about myself and I've spent a lot of time trying to, work on the empathy and listen to people and understand and have conversations. And I like to think that I can pride myself on being able to do that in conversations now where I can sit down and listen to people and then, and then really figure out what drives them. Beautiful. Do you find, um, like most of humanity, but even more so I would imagine with the context you've explained, do you find that uh, problem solving and conversation comes very naturally to sometimes a detriment and, and someone says, you're fixing me as opposed to just feeling with me? 100%. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is something where I'm currently exploring with some of the coaches I work with is about uh, unsolicited advice as harassment. So uh, as someone that is is wired 100% to solve problems, when there is a problem, it becomes my problem to solve it. And that is not often what people want. In fact, it's mostly what people don't want. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I am doing a lot of personal work around trying to be supportive and trying to let people know that I'm there to help them with something and to not be trying to give advice when they don't want it. And that's mm-hmm. very hard from an engineer. <laughs> um, it's like, this is broken, do this. It will fix yeah. everything. Um, and you know, I don't always, I mostly don't have the answer. It's in what I've been learning is a lot about is, um, is saying this small thing worked for me and maybe it will work for you. Um, and the more I spend on in men's circles and the work that we're doing through with weapon, uh, I am working on myself to, to be less, here's some advice when trying to be more supportive and let people, um, you know, lead by example in some ways, listen to people. It's a very fine line between, um, for me, trying to, to follow that and try not to be here. I think this is what you should do to solve your problem because that's not going to be what people want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I mean, we're all on the journey with that. Um, it's it's hard as well because you have the perfect, literally I couldn't think of a more perfect storm uh, to be a problem solver than, than yourself because you have on one side your empath, your poorest to others' emotions, which means the moment someone feels bad, you feel bad with them and you're like, how do I get this bad feeling out of my body as soon as possible? Mixed with an engineering analytical brain that wants to root cause analysis and extinguish. So those two things kind of, pour fuel on one another and it makes sense why um, you may struggle to sit what we call sitting in the mud with someone, which is often what they're looking for. They're looking for the connection, not the cure, um, Mm. because the connection is the cure. (laughs) And, um, you know, the work that we do, um, and I'd love to, by the way, just send you our e-learning course that we're about to launch on these conversations because I just love your two cents on it um, from an analytical perspective. Um, But it is, I think the work is reorientating yourself to look at listening as a problem-solving intervention because then you don't feel like you're letting your problem-solving brain down. You're like, no, I'm getting really good at problem-solving through this other tactic as opposed to just waiting in the mud, waiting for a solution. Yeah. Yeah, I've been working with a couple of other guys on... um uh, the power of questions and the power of silence and, you know, in listening and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a work for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the solution drops in so quickly for me that I'm, I pride myself on being able to walk into any situation, no matter how bad it is and be able to see the solution instant, almost instantly. And that is very difficult to navigate when you're dealing with the matters of the heart. 
because yep. it, it's not the same as in an engineering world where someone's like, just give me the problem enough and let, let me know the problem fix it. So when the matters of the heart and the mind, it's, yeah, you said being in the mud and learning to navigate that and ask the right questions and then, and you know, and yeah, being asking the right questions and then being silent is definitely mm. different. Do you, do you remember a time and what age you were when you started to question yourself around why do I feel like this or what's wrong with me? Mm, what, what do I feel like? Um, well, have you ever felt like that? Like have you ever felt uh, confused as to why you're experiencing internal pain? Yeah, I mean, I, I come up from a, I grew up from a, a early childhood of bullying um, and a very, very intense bullying. Um, and I've only recently realized that I'm fairly dyslexic. Um, and I've always had a lot of shame around writing and writing on boards and, um, you know, any sort of writing so I've always thought what's wrong with me and in um, my ability to write and I've always had a lot of shame with that and I only recently realized that there's an underlying reason for it but it also gives me that other superpower which is the connecting the dots power right like that's something that I'm really proud of like I, I'm actually now starting to embrace this dyslexia and go, yeah, I can't spell and yeah, I can't write grammar and uh, I can't write a sentence to save my life, but I can connect some really good dots. So, mm. but uh, the, um, the problem is, is that I found that um, the, the ability to be empathetic and stuff like that is definitely something that I've really just started realizing that it is a problem. Um, being empathetic and then trying to be a problem solver. And it's only really in the last year that I've come aware of that. Mm. It's like, why am I driving people away even though all I'm trying to do is help them? And yeah. that's, that's, that's yeah, a big wow. realization. I, I, I'm like pouring my heart out for you. I'm like, I'm like, I'm lying myself on the coals so you can walk over me and all you're saying is I'm a bad person. <laughs> What's going on here? Uh, wow. He's giving advice when people don't want it. What an amazing insight, but what a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very hard. Very hard, very difficult to work with, especially since it's all I am, it's all I believe in. But, you know, it's good to learn that. It's much better to learn that now than be at the end of my life and go on, oh, whoops, should have worked, worked out mm-hmm. that I was giving advice and people didn't want it. Can you briefly describe your mental health journey in terms of what what has been the major struggle for you? Is it anxiety or depression and, and what led to that? Hmm. For, for me, it, um, it, it's probably anxiety around um, writing, uh, anxiety around spelling, being up in front of a board and someone asking me to write something simple on the board. It's very crippling to me and it sort of comes back to when I was a child and, you know, being at school, it asked me to do that. But my um, my real journey with mental health has is, is been more on the stress and um, trauma caused by um, highly stressful environments and situations that put you your brain uh, into, into shock and, and survival mode. So while I've had a big journey with anxiety of writing, uh, what led me on the path I'm on now wasn't so much that. And what's ended up happening from the path that got started, from the thing I'll explain in a second, is that now I'm revisiting these other things, which are the anxiety and the empathy and stuff like that, because now I'm so much further down my path. But where I started was, um, and this is kind of, I suppose, the real crux of why Weapon does what it does, and, um, and if you wanted to go into this now, it's, it's basically I was working in a highly stressful environment. I was working as an engineer. I was um, doing 95-hour weeks. I was um, burning the candle at both ends, but I was performing. Like I was delivering. I was succeeding in what I was doing, but I was never home. Uh, and I was 
highly stressed every day. And I always remember thinking, oh, I don't stress is everyone else's problem. It doesn't affect me. Like, um, the more stressful, the better I am. Like, you know, and, and that's kind of maybe a trait of dyslexia is like the more stress you've got on you, the better you work. And I always went, yeah, this is great. I'm killing it. And I got to the point where I was just doing just crazy number of hours per day. And I remember this day, um, and not unlike any other day, I, I just, someone said something to me and it was like, I, I couldn't see the solution. I couldn't see the problem. I couldn't, I couldn't see a way out. And this guy said something to me and I just ripped him to the bone. I poured every muscle off him. I just shredded him down till there's nothing left of him. And he was the loveliest of guys, the most kindest of people. And I, I don't even think the problem was his. And mm. I remember thinking, what is going on? That is not me. I'm not a person that talks to someone like that. And I remember just getting up and walking out like of the workplace. And I just got up, went to McDonald's of all places because it was an industrial area. It's the only place I could find to go by myself. Sat down, called one of my colleagues and I said, I think something's wrong. Um, I think I might have hit a wall. Um, and I, I just couldn't see any way out of anything. Like everything was crushing for me. And all of a sudden, the the, the sign of my phone or anything, just, just anxiety just became overwhelming. I couldn't deal with digital. I couldn't deal. I couldn't drive. I couldn't do anything. And so I got, I managed to spend a bit of time. I think I don't know how long I spent there, but I managed to get home eventually. And then I went to my wife and said, look, you know, something's wrong. We need to get away from everything. And I lay on the ground just in the room that she was in for like several hours. And she booked us into a, um, accommodation in the mountains and we went away for four days you know left the phones behind turned off all technology and just 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 went into the bush and just did nothing other than talking yoga eating some food walking just being real trying to really desensitize myself and it took me over a month to get back to working full time so I just couldn't the following week, I couldn't face my phone. I couldn't face any digital technology. I couldn't face anything. I, I just everything was a problem for me. And I, I this this is where the kind of all started for me. I started going, holy! I've just been like running on this knife edge for so long, and I've just gone a little bit further and not realized that there was this cliff, and I fell off it massively. And mm. it took me over a month to get back to full time work. I I was so lucky that one of my mentors had suggested to me the idea of burnout and stress and, and what um, this can do to your mind. And I managed to identify it in that moment by she said, what happens is you snap and you tend to like yell at someone that you wouldn't normally do. And I did that and uh, we talked about it later and I was, I probably would have kept going on that day and I would have done real damage to myself. Um, and it sort of started me on this path of like, am, am I the only one going through this? What's going on here? Mm. And I started really seeing stress and mental health as a major issue of people like, you know, my age and men going through this um, situation. And because I was going through it myself, I sort of about trying to seek out support for it and trying to create an environment where I could find the answers I was looking for. And in doing that, I... Um, we changed and pivoted the business to create something that scratched my own edge, which was to create a community of men that um, could come together and bond and talk about these issues that they're going through. But it goes even further to that because when I, I also look at why I left the mining industry, I left because it was a toxic environment. Uh, I saw many relationships break down. I was overseas in Mongolia working alone uh, and the only reason I survived there over, I believe, everyone else is I didn't have a relationship. A lot of other people did. The majority of those relationships fell over because we were away for so long. And the, the mental um, torment of having your family on the other side of the planet when you can't have see them or call them or talk to them uh, just destroyed a lot of people. But then also the destructive lifestyle of that mining industry, you know, the heavy drinking, the um, long hours. And then when you come home, all people want to do is go out drinking with their mates. So... This whole idea sort of just brewed in me before I left, and I was like, I just don't want to do that and be that person long term. And, and really, where it came down to the final decision to leave the mining industry, this is before, this is 2012, before the incident in 2015, was that 
I remember seeing these guys that just sat in the mining industry just, you know, every night cutting a beer between their legs and their whole goal in life was just to finish that carton. And that's all they live for. You know, they drink, they know if they drink this exact amount of beer before a certain time, they can blow on the next morning and get the next day. So then come back completely alone in life. Uh, wives had left them. Kids hate them because they're always away. They have no relationships. And I literally saw myself in them and I went, I can't. I don't want to go down that path. And the real turning point for me was when there was an incident on the mine site at a camp. Uh, nothing about anyone was doing something wrong. Some I was doing my washing and someone ran past me in a camp. And if you know, they're all cabins, they're all in line. The washings are like little hubs. A whole bunch of people ran past. And honestly, I can't remember this guy's name, but this really bugs me that I don't remember his name because it really set my own path to change. But this guy ran past and said, and I'm just going to call him Jim, for example. Do you know where Jim's room is? Now, Jim, we work with every single day. We saw him every day. He was in the mine site. We all knew him. And I said, no, I have no idea where his room is. And they're like, we're trying to find him. He's called us and he's sitting he's having a heart attack. Now, he's collapsed in his room. And people are running around this camp with thousands of rooms, no idea where he is. So no one that worked with him every day had a relationship with him that knew where he was staying. Yet we all lived in the same camp. We all went to the same area. They eventually found Jim. I'm not sure how, but through someone um, found him. And I was walking back to my room, you know, they'd cordon the area off. And I looked in the door and there was this guy on the floor with four men around him pumping his chest because he'd um, collapsed and he was having a heart attack. Um, he died that night. Um, and the next day, we all went into, um, into work to find out he passed away. And the saddest thing about that for me is that there was no one to call. He didn't have family. He didn't have relationships. He didn't have anyone. Like, he died alone in that room. So for me, it became like this kind of catalyst of I've got to help this society out with this. It's just not good enough. Um, and I saw myself going down that path. And I said, I've got to get out of this. You know, if I'm in this too long, I'm going to be the pro- another statistic like this. And I, and I decided I couldn't help it from there. So I left that industry, but I didn't do anything about it. I didn't do anything about it until this incident happened with stress for me. And then the stress thing brought back all of those issues that I went through and all those experiences I'd seen and all those broken relationships. And the more I dug into it, the more problems I saw with society and men and and other people going through things. And I just said, look, this is enough. We've got to do something about this. And we, we pivoted the whole business and the whole purpose of the business now is, is, um, is, raising awareness for men's mental health and bringing men together and, and, and connecting men up with, um, with people that can help them and, and putting a mental health message into a place that people wouldn't expect it. And that's what I really love about the, the brand is that we can enter into this conversation situation before people get to that point or maybe they already are at that point, but they're not looking. And my problem was I only started looking when I really had a problem, right? I was properly broken. I was in you know, in somewhere in the mountain going, I've got real issues I need to sort out. And then I started seeking out and I thought, how can I bring that to people before they get to that point? How can I get to that guy that was in the mind site before he got to that point, you know, before his relationships broke down or if they already have, how can I start talking to him? And so, yeah, we started interleaving that in with the brand message. And mostly it's because I needed to create a network of people around me to make sure that I was okay and supported and create a group for myself. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, I was right there with you that whole time. Um, and I could feel how much that impacted you, particularly that day where you felt like it all culminated. Uh, and you were just pushing your brain beyond any comprehension of cognitive load that's feasible. Uh, and I think that sometimes, I don't know if it's a, a male thing, I think everyone, particularly A-type overachievers um, who are somewhat neurotic, 
and I would class myself as that, uh, you you legitimately think that your brain and body are superhuman sometimes. Like I will put this under infinite amounts of load and I expect it to carry it. And eventually your anatomy just goes, it is physically fucking impossible and it's time to shut down. And for you that manifested in you know, irritability and, um, and, uh, some hostility that was uncharacteristic. Um, and for others it manifests in different ways. And I think f- what, what I've got from your story is kind of these two parallel work streams. There was a more always on, um, kind of more deeper personality things that related back to the bullying and the dyslexia and the shame that went around that. And then there was more of a, tactical surface level mathematical equation of like calories in versus calories out brain calories and eventually the lubrication of the pistons just dried up that was i just accidentally used an engineering metaphor there i'm proud of myself for that yeah. <laughs> um so so you had you, you you've kind of been on on those both sides of, of the equation um do you think that you were working so hard and running so hard in order to prove something to those kids back in high school that, that said that laughed at you or whatever, or do you think that you're just a overachiever in general? Um, I, I, I think so. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the idea is, is that, you know, they kind of, the best thing that ever happened to me was that they bullied me so that I became so, you know, intense and in everything I do, but I think it's also part, partly who I am. I, I think I've recently realized that, yeah, I have hundred percent trying to be like, was thinking like, I'm actually going to go back at some Jubilee event and be like, look how good I am. Um, mm. And that's kind of driven a lot of the things. And recently I realized it has not been healthy and I've been working through a lot of that stuff lately um, and being like, that's not serving me in any way, shape or form what I need. And, and I know now that the thing that I need to do is just is to, to do what I need to do to be happy in myself and, and, you know, what's my purpose and what, and I hold myself to such a high level of achievement that why would I ever care what anyone else wants to hold uh, me too. So that's been a real re- recent realization, like I think about three weeks ago. <laughs> so um, it's a very new realization, and, and yeah, definitely driven driven by the trauma of my childhood. And um, but I am also driven to, you know, to want to succeed. And that stress led me to stress, and then. From that, I've now come back around, and, and now I'm talking about what's my purpose in life. What are what am I, you know, what's my reason for being rather than trying to prove something? And that's really a deep realization for myself is that I'm mm. I don't need to prove anything to anyone, but also what is my purpose? And and going through that stress meant that I really looked at life in general. And looked at what was I doing and why was I burning these hours and, you know, what was important to me. Um, and I looked at my family and I realized I spent no time with them. I looked at my friends and realized I spent no time with them and realized I was living to work rather than working to live. Yeah. So you would say, to summarize kind of your main learnings out of this, what I'm hearing is... Um, uh, find your purpose and be aligned with who you really are and allow that to manifest in the work that you do every day. And then the second thing is family and or relationships, people are the most important thing and nothing should ever let that drift away and that should be held in the core part of who you are. Are there any other learnings or have I got that right or wrong? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, there's a few learnings in there for me is that, you know, yeah, be if you know your compass and your values and, and you and you've got your true north then what anyone else says doesn't matter at all it just literally doesn't matter you don't need validation from anyone else you don't need to to be approval from them it, it, and and with that becomes happiness because then you're not being governed or guided by the validation of anyone else you don't care what anyone else seeks so if you set out to do something and it it wasn't as good as the other guys did but you, you it was your goal Awesome. You did what you tried to do. Uh, and even if anyone ridicules you for not being as good as, as them, 
well, you, you did what you needed to do. And, and I, I think that's kind of the realization for me is that I've tried to work a lot on what my true north is and I've tried to work a lot on what my guide encompasses and tried to align my values to that. And then, and I think I've been lucky in my relationships that I've aligned to someone with my wife that also has the same true north. Um, and I think I've been very lucky in that space. Um, and yeah, just experiencing all those things I've been through has allowed me to really look back and, and, and really take advantage of what matters before I get to the point where I've gone, geez, I wish, I wish I'd spent more time in my thirties or forties with kids. And instead of spending all my time working to try and provide something and trying to succeed and then end up not having a relationship with my kids. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Uh, I, I also want to say that there's a learning as well that I've taken away, which is um, when you tap into your why or, or maybe that core seed or that driver, um, often you might find a, a poisonous seed that has been driving you subconsciously for a very long time and we need to become aware of it and then grieve it. You know, you, what I've heard from you very recently is that you've you've identified that a huge driving function behind this has been a fuck you and I proved you wrong. And um, that actually takes from us in the long term. It's resentment, it's anger and the the plant will never grow up to flower if its core seed is that and and that is destroying you more than it's destroying them and by being able to let go of that and I, I do personally believe that some of that is grieving because it, it it has been a huge source of energy for a long time and you're changing energy supplies and to do that um, it's not as easy as as people think like oh I've we- I've weeded out all the bad shit now life just gets easier it's like no we have to readjust to finding where the roots can attach to outside of that toxic narrative. Yeah. Um, but it's wor- it's a worthwhile journey and I'm really glad to hear that that's something that you've been on. Yeah, cool, yeah. And it, it is definitely that. It's, it's, yeah, big fuck you and and then now setting my path based on, you know, like positive energy and, you know, a reason for being is to be a role model and, and to inspire my children, you know, like, to, to th- that's all the kind of encouragement I need. Like, you know, why do I get up in the morning and train at five thirty in the morning? Because I want to be a role model for my kids. You know, why do I, you know, why do I work hard now in the time frame? Because I want to be a role model. I want to inspire them. But then when I'm with them, I'm with them. You know. Yeah, that's a good true north. Yeah, I'm not going to be away for twelve, thirteen hours a day so that I can provide for them, and then they go, "Well, Dad was never here." So yeah, I um, yeah. And how old are your kids? Two and a half and five months. Five months. Wow. What's it like being a new dad? Um, it was tough at the beginning. It was very tough. I think uh, I don't think you really ever know what you're going to get into there, and it's only when you experience it the first time. But uh, it's pretty good now. Like it's it's trying at the beginning. That's for sure. Like you sleep and and whatnot. But um, now it's it's amazing. Like the amount of uh, fulfillment I get from the time we spend together is really good. Yeah. So being a dad's become a big part of your identity and, and happiness. Yeah, I'd say it has. Yeah. Like I never really got the whole, um, it's not even really got, but it's one of those things is you don't understand until you get to be a dad in a way that no one can explain it to you. And then, once you're there, you're like, oh, I get this now. And so, yeah, it is your identity. Like, it, you know, just melts my heart when a little one comes in and says, Daddy, I love you. It's just, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah. The best feeling in the world, I would imagine. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really is. Um, it just completely fulfills you and, yeah, it gives you purpose and gives you uh, um, a reason to get up. And, and then when you're four in the morning and she's screaming and whatnot, <laughs> you're realizing that, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, the daddy, I love you will be amazing. There's uh, it'll make up for it. Yeah, it's funny, hey. You need uh, you need those credit points in the bank for when 
when you're not in a place of love that you have to hold on to that moment. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Then um, you learn a lot about um, patience. Um, I think the interesting thing about children for me has been I've learned so much about myself and I've developed so much more as a person because of children. Uh, and I had to because, you know, if I reacted to the way you would react to someone screaming all night that wasn't your own child, you probably would not give a lot of patience to them. And so it's given me an opportunity to really yeah, learn about patience, learn about um, consistency, learning about um, committing to something and, and realizing a higher purpose um, because, you know, if you can't turn up every day for them, uh, and you have to, you have to turn up every day for them. There's no option. And doing that every day, and and when you don't, you see the instant ramifications. Oh, I oh, I'm just going to let her stay up tonight. Hits you straight away. So, yeah, is a is a personal growth. It's it's a big personal growth. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah I'll bet. And and so my final question, because I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, what are your top three coping tools that you use today to maintain your mental health? Um, top three coping tools to maintain my mental health is breathing, um, breathing work. Uh, massive uh, believer in the um, box breath and you know controlling your um, mental state through breathing. Um, gratitude is another one that's come in uh, recently. Um, actually, not yeah, recently, but. Um, trying to change a mindset from what's going to go wrong to being great, uh, grateful for things and particularly is going to be a new dad. Everything was terrible. Everything's going to change my life and the narrative was just negative. So gratitude about children. And um, the other thing is, um, is, is surrounding myself with people of value but also having a space to share and commune and talk and men's circles has been a big work that we've been doing. And that space has been providing me avenue to, to talk and, and listen and, 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 you know, speak freely and, and hear myself say something. And often I'd hear my own answer because I spoke it, but then there's also wisdom in the group. And then there's also a freeing event, freeing feeling when you do share something that's been on your chest and, in a safe space and, um, you know, even if someone doesn't give you advice, the, the simple matter of getting it off your chest has, has been a huge um, change and ability to deal with uh, stress and anxiety and um, the, what's going, what I'm going through in a mental health um, situation. Thanks, Darren. Yeah, I, I, I think they're three very, very important things. And I, it's very interesting that, a lot of people in the professional world are paid and compensated based on their ability and efficiency to fix problems. And that means that we are risk identifiers first. So gratitude is not a default mindset because it's not how we've been compensated. And mm -hmm. so I think you have to manufacture that brain wiring if you're someone like that so that you start to see the positive lens on what can go right. Um, and I'm really glad that that's been helpful for you. Um, your, what, what's one thing you would, uh, I, I lied. I have one more question. <laughs> what's one thing you would uh, tell someone who's going through a similar situation to you or identifies with your path? What would be the one bit of advice you would give? Now, now you're allowed to give advice. <laughs> um, and, and this, this is this is one f for the for the dads and um, or people going through dads and I went through a very dark time at the beginning. Is that um, it is a it, there isn't a lot of information out there about what it's like to be a dad in the space, and there isn't a lot of help. Um, but there is other men going through it, and as a, my my major. Um, thing for people that are going through this, something like that and struggling with identifying with being a new dad or, or the, the, the role change and the stress that comes with it is seek out a men's group and seek out a group of other guys that you can talk to. Um, there's men's circles and majority of cities, there's dad life and, and stuff like that and have an opportunity to speak with other dads. I think that was the biggest thing for me is actually understanding that other dads are going through this. Um, and it, and it's a, 
are kind of under underspoken about and it really leads to long-term trauma. Um, and I think guys really need to talk about it. You know, it's an, it's an, it's an intense event, like being in a ward and see what goes through in childbirth and then to be the rock and the foundation and then, and then to have your whole world changed and then, and then, then nothing, you've got no support. Um, it's a big challenge. And I, one of the things I want to do is talk about that more. So I, I, yeah. And so um, before we go, just want to give a shout out so to your organization. So Weapon, um, and and people can find that at WPNware.com. That's great. Um, and do you want to just give a quick summary of what you guys do? Yeah, sure. So um, as I said, Weapon's the, um, is like the conduit to the conversation. So we, we provide men's active wear apparel, um, uh, but our main goal is creating a conversation around uh, mental health and well-being and being able to connect men up with that message and providing it in places that they wouldn't normally expect. So 10% of all um, revenues go towards um, providing men's uh, mental health initiatives and that that is events we call the weapon sessions. We run them around the country. Majority of the time at the moment it's in Brisbane and Perth. Unfortunately, we're lucky enough with COVID, we can still run them. Um, and those events bring men together and for a breathing movement and um, men's circle event and allows men to connect up and share. And so, yeah, our, our, as I said, our, our idea and the goal is to bring men into this that they wouldn't normally um, uh, touch base into this, but also provide a safe space and, and further to that to connect them up with other people that can take their learning further and, and set them on a path to um, – work on, you know, themselves, mental health and become better, happier, healthier people. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for sharing your story and providing those insights. Um, and I'm, I feel very proud and grateful to be able to, to get that out there. And I will be cheering on Weapon and yourself, Darren, from the sidelines for sure. Thank you very much for having me. 